Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Well, it's exciting to be back with you today. Once again, we are starting this morning a brand new series called Doctrine Ecclesiology. I know that's super nerdy, super nerdy. We weren't feeling very creative, but uh, who knows what ecclesiology means? Anybody? 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 It's the doctrine of the... Church, very good. So usually if you've been around Gospel Hope for any period of time, we are kind of walking through books of the Bible. Taking a little break from that this summer, and what we're doing is highlighting several passages of Scripture that help us to gain a biblical understanding of the church. There are thousands and probably millions of opinion about what the church should be or what the church is or what the church should look like. And what we wanted to really do is allow the scripture to define for us what the church should be. So today we're going to start this series called, uh, with a message called the transformative church from Ephesians chapter three. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help as we open up God's word together. Father, We pray all the things that we have sung this morning. Lord, would you be our vision? Would you remind us that you are a way maker? Father, would you help us to celebrate the amazing grace that is available to all who trust in Jesus because of his work on behalf of sinners? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law. Lord, would you hide me behind the cross of Christ this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, amen. So I'm going to start today with a little quiz. It's pretty easy, pretty easy. So if you want to turn your attention to the screen, I have three images up here for your consideration. The first one, upper left, is obviously a... Jim, very good, no pain, no gain. Second one, up on the upper right is a classroom, very good. Okay, the third one's a little bit tricky. I I look for several images on this and there is no quintessential representation of this. The third one is a, oh, somebody said it over here. Counseling room, that's right, counseling room. So what do all three of these places have in common? In a sense, they're places where people go to experience transformation, right? You go to the gym because you want to transform your body. You go to the classroom because, in a sense, you want to transform your mind. You go to the counseling room because you want to transform everything, I guess, right? Emotions and relationships and all of the things that happen in the counseling room. Well, why do I bring this up? Because these are places where people experience transformation. And do you know that actually God designed the church fundamentally to be a place where people experience transformation? That's really, in essence, a part of what the church is. The church is not fundamentally a community establishment. It's not fundamentally a social organization. It's not even fundamentally a religious institution. Rather, God designed the church to be a visible demonstration of gospel transformation. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? A visible demonstration of gospel transformation. 
Now, in order to understand that statement, we need to get underneath it just a little bit to understand the theology of the essential nature of the church. The, the Greek word translated church in the Bible is the word ekklesia. And it simply means this, it means gathering or assembly. Thus, we call this series the doctrine of ecclesiology. Hear the similarity there? The doctrine of the church. But that word ecclesia, it, it helps us understand what the church is. It is a gathering or assembly. So if I could put it very plainly, the church is not fundamentally a place. It's fundamentally a people. It's a gathering of people. Church is not fundamentally a place, it is fundamentally a people. And if you grasp that idea, it helps you understand what is happening in the church. Now, I don't have any problem with anybody calling this brick and mortar structure the church. We call this the church because the church meets at the church, dizzying, I know. But if this church built, burned down, God forbid, if this church burnt down, would Gospel Hope Church cease to exist? Yes or no? No. Well, unless we're all in it, right? And that would be a double tragedy, right? But no, the church is not a place. The church is a people, but it's a particular kind of people. It is people who have experienced or are experiencing the transforming power of the gospel. That's what the church is fundamentally. People who are transformed and who are being transformed by the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. And let me tell you something. The Apostle Paul is particularly jazzed about that idea. Look at our text today in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 8. Look at what Paul says. This grace was given to me, the least of all saints. Notice this next phrase. To proclaim to the Gentiles the, what's it say up on the screen? One more time. One more time. Incalculable riches of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Paul believes that the gospel of Jesus is so valuable that you cannot, you cannot fully estimate its value. Its riches are incalculable. And I think the reason that Paul is so excited about this idea is at least in part because of the gospel's ability to change people. So here's my point this morning. Here's where we're going. We must recognize and rely on the gospel's transforming power. We need to recognize it and we need to rely on it. Now, here's the problem. That's not where I live a lot of times. Would you agree with that? Like I don't live every day, every minute of my life recognizing and relying on the transforming power of the gospel. Sometimes my sins feel great and the hope held out in the gospel seem pretty small. Sometimes my problems feel gigantic and the grace of God given to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ seems rather insignificant. Sometimes my, my brokenness feels massive 
and the wholeness available to me through the work of Jesus feels just itty bitty teeny tiny. I don't often think of the gospel of as incalculable riches. I think of it as a few dollars crumpled in my pocket. But there's good news in this passage and for all of us. And it's simply this, how you feel about the gospel has no bearing on the actual worth of the gospel. We sang a song either, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. My feelings on the gospel impact the actual value and worth of the gospel absolutely zero. Let me use a silly illustration. Let's suppose Pastor Rod very graciously and generously, because you know Pastor Rod be balling, you know, right? He deposits in my bank account $10 million. We're not going to ask where my brother got that because we want him to be our pastor. And he says, Ryan, I just want to bless you. I just want to be kind to you. I have deposited $10 million in your bank account. He gives me the deposit slip and says, there it is in black and white on paper, $10 million in your bank account. I take that and I say, man, that is just too good to be true. That is so overwhelmingly good, it cannot possibly be true. So I take that deposit slip, I wad it up, I put it in my pocket, and I never draw on any of those funds. Now here's a question. How am I feeling about the deposit that Pastor Rod made? I, I just don't believe it. I don't think it's accurate. I, can, I can't fathom it. But here's the other question. How much money is in my bank account? $10 million. Like that actual bank account has not changed one iota depend on how I feel it. Look, and the worth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, it is powerful, it is valuable no matter how you feel about it this morning. You don't gotta prop it up, you don't gotta help it at all. You don't gotta encourage God to do his work a little bit better. You just need to say, I recognize and I realize that the transforming power of the gospel is there and it is available to me and its worth is incalculable. And friends, it's already there. Deposit slips already been signed. So that raises the question, at least in my mind, simply this, how does the gospel transform? If the gospel has this transforming power that Paul is stoked about, how does the gospel actually transform in the church, in the assembly of the people of God? How does the gospel transform us? I wanna make three brief observations this morning about the transforming power of the gospel. The first one is simply this. The gospel can make persecutors into proclaimers. Paul begins this section with a brief autobiographical note about the power of the gospel in his own life. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 8 carefully again. This grace to preach the gospel was given to me the least of all saints. It's just an interesting phrase. So Paul's saying... God has given me grace and I am the least of all saints. Now, when you hear the name Paul, you may immediately think of, you know, the apostle, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, the, the one who went on the missionary journeys and took the gospel where it wasn't. I mean, this pillar of the faith and rightfully so, but we can't forget that the apostle Paul was not always the apostle Paul. Before he became Paul the apostle, he was Saul the persecutor. Public enemy number one of Jesus and his church and his people. He did not always have this wonderful story in his life. There was a period in Paul's life where he was very, very, very far from God. 
And yet, it doesn't seem like Paul shrank back from remembering those details. In fact, as you read through the New Testament, Paul is consistently highlighting this idea that there was a time in my life when I was very far from God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 9, For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I give thanks to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to this ministry, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man. This saying is trustworthy though and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. He's not writing a resume here, he's writing a rap sheet. Paul is consistently going back to the idea that before he met Jesus, he was far from God. And then in our passage again today, this grace was given to me, the least of all saints. Paul was convinced and celebrating the radical transforming power of the gospel because he had tasted it himself. And if you are a blood-bought follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you have too. You may not have a Damascus Road-type story like the Apostle Paul, but if you have been saved by Jesus, you've went from a, a persecutor to a proclaimer of this good news. The gospel is powerful. We gave a little nod to probably the most famous hymn in church history, Amazing Grace, this morning. We sang, This is Amazing Grace. And as many of you might know, that song was written by John Newton, a longtime pastor. But before John Newton was a pastor, he was not a good man. He was a moral man. So far so that he slipped away from God in such a distant way that he was actually involved in the buying and selling of human beings in the slave trade. And yet, one day, God got a hold of John Newton... And when he passed away, Newton penned his own epitaph, what appeared on his gravestone. Here is what he wrote. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, notice what he says, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. In fact, shortly before Newton passed away, he had these words to say, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Friends, if the gospel can transform John Newton if the gospel can transform the Apostle Paul, listen to me very carefully, it can certainly transform you. I don't know your story. I don't know your experience. I don't know your background. I don't know your failures, but I don't have to. Here's what I do know. Though we are all great sinners, Christ is still a great Savior. The church is not a gathering of perfect people. The church is a gathering of pardoned ones. We're not people who got our acts all together. We are people who have been put back together by Christ. 
That's what the church is. It's not the assembly of the righteous. It is the assembly of those who have been made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ. So if you're broken this morning, pull up a chair. If your life is a wreck, you are in the right place. If you feel far gone and you can never find your way back home, there is a seat at the table for you. You know what the church is? It's a church of messed up people who have found the one who can unmess things up. We're just a bunch of beggars who have found the way to get bread. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's what the church is, y'all. You don't have to clean yourself up to get in here. You get in here to get yourself cleaned up. And we need to recognize that Paul is reveling, reveling in the grace of God because he tasted and saw that the Lord is good. Do you feel far? Welcome home. Because Jesus came and got his sheep that fell in a ditch and he brought them into the family. The gospel is transforming because it can take persecutors and turn them into proclaimers of that same gospel. Second thing. The gospel is powerful because it can take strangers and make them into siblings. I need you to put your theological thinking caps on here for a moment because this one gets a little deep. Look at verse number eight again. This grace was given to me, the least of all saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed to light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. All right. So when God saved Paul, he had a particular job for Paul to do. And Paul's job was to bring to light this mystery that had been hidden. It's mysterious. It was unclear what was going to happen. So what was this mystery that it was Paul's job to reveal. What was that mystery? Well, look back in verse number six, and Paul tells us. The Gentiles, non-Jewish people, are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. All right, so what's happening here? In the Old Testament times, really God's work was in a sense primarily restricted to a little tract of land along the Mediterranean Sea we call Israel. The vast majority of God's people were Jewish in ethnic descent and the vast majority of God's work was among this people that we call the nation of Israel or Jews. And yet what happened was this, God sent God sent Jesus, died on the cross, rose from the dead, poured out his spirit on his people, and then told Paul and others, now, I want you to take this message global. I don't want it to be restricted just to the nation of Israel anymore. I want it to go everywhere for everyone. I want all peoples and all nations to know about the work of my son. And that's what Paul began to do. This would have been astonishing. Stop and think about it for a moment. For a while, the whole, the whole notion of Jehovah God was restricted to one people group. And then through the work of Jesus, it was supposed to go to the whole world. Now, because of Jesus, it has become possible for people from Guatemala and Malaysia and Ghana and Jamaica and right here in Atlanta to be truly united together in the church. What Paul seems to be saying is this in this passage, listen, that Christ's blood is thicker than anything else. You heard the statement, uh, blood is thicker than? Okay, 
that was less than enthusiastic, but that's fine, okay. And, and, and the idea is like, you're, you're always closest to your family. Like that, that doesn't fade away. But what Paul seems to be doing here is kind of redefining family. He's basically saying, no, 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 no. Christ's blood is thicker than all other bonds. So Jews and Gentiles, regardless of their background, regardless of their history, regardless of their ethnicity, have now been united into one body through the work of Christ so that this thing called the church is born and people from all over the world are actually united as family. I want you to like grasp this for just a minute. What does that mean? It means that like Brie, she's not like like my sister. She is my sister. Through the work of Jesus, she's not like my sister. She is my sister through the work of Christ. Lawrence is not like my brother. He is my brother through the work of Christ. And that bond in one sense is even deeper than biology. Christ's blood is thicker than all other. Or as we like to say around here, the church is not like a, it is a. And that's what Paul is proclaiming here. And he's like, listen, this is awesome. Church is now open to anyone and everyone. Doesn't matter your history. Doesn't matter where you're from. The church is open to all who would trust in Christ. And because of that, we are truly united. Now, here's where it gets deep. God had a purpose in building this multi-ethnic family. What was it? Look at verse number 10. This is so the multifaceted wisdom of God may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heaven. What? What what you talking about, Paul? Okay, here, here, let's, let's go phrase by phrase. So God is making known the wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God through the church. So he puts all these people together from different walks of life, from different ethnicities, and builds them into the church. And he's saying, I'm doing that so that my wisdom gets made known. Who's he trying to show his wisdom to? Do you see what it said in the text? To rulers and authorities. Well, who are those folks? Well, if you've read your Bible and, and you've been around the church block for very long, that phrase occurs in another very familiar passage of Scripture in the same book of the Bible. It's down in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12. Look at what it says there. Same words. Flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. What? So Paul is saying God created the church to display his wisdom, not just to unbelievers, but to angels and demons. That's what that text says. So so let me help you understand that with maybe an image that'll capture this. Imagine the largest stadium you can think of. So think of Mercedes-Benz and then multiply it by 10. Okay, just like unfathomably huge. 
And imagine that stadium packed to capacity, every seat in it filled. One half is filled with angels, good guys, right? And the other half is filled with the devils of hell, just packed to the brim. And down on the infield is, is this structure that's being built. It's not just any structure though, it's, it's like the most beautiful and glorious structure you can imagine. The building of just utter magnificence with carvings and frescoes and archways and flying buttresses. And I don't know what those are, but it sounds really architecturally. All crafted together in perfect harmony to, 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 so that you would see something just breathtakingly beautiful. But here's the kicker. That building is being put together brick by brick, stone by stone, board by board by a master architect. And every bit of building material is unique. It's all different and variegated and, and every brick looks a little bit different and every piece of wood looks a little bit different and made of a little bit material. And yet, when the building goes together, it looks like it's just perfect. Wow, that's supposed to go that way. That building is the church of Jesus Christ. And those bricks and materials are people. And the architect is God himself. And God is taking bricks and materials, us, people, and joining them into his church, into a beautiful structure. And when God does that, and he adds another brick on, the angels say, yeah! Our God is awesome. Look at his wisdom, his multifaceted creativity the diversity of his design that he takes all kinds of people and joins them together into this beautiful structure. What a wise God. And the demons on the other side gnash their teeth and say, we hate him. He took that thing that we thought was broken and he somehow fit it just in the right place. He took that thing that we thought was ours and he's made it into a masterpiece that fits with these other blocks and buildings to form this beautiful thing called the church. Listen, there is more going on this morning and in our life together than sometimes we imagine. Our audience is not just the people out there. Our audience is the unseen world that we don't even see. Brothers and sisters, what we're doing here is of cosmic significance the angels and demons are looking on to see if God is really cracked up to what he says he is. No angel will ever be able to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me because they've never tasted the sweetness of salvation after being broken by sin. The only way they see it is vicariously through us. We are being joined together into the building of the church so that the unseen world would say, how great is this God? Friends, so guess what? Our unity matters. Let's die to our preferences. Let's die to our self-interest. God has the power through the gospel to make strangers, people who wouldn't be in the same room together, siblings. And who but God could do something like that? Who but God could take black people and white people and brown people and every shade in between and bring them together into this beautiful thing we call the local church? Who but God could take rich people and poor people and young people and more seasoned people and join them together 
into this beautiful thing we call the church. Who but God could take Republicans and Democrats and people who are neither and proud of it and join them together into this wonderful thing that we called the local church. Who but God could take people, some who were saved as itty-bitty children, hearing the message of Jesus at the foot of their parents, and some of them who had made an absolute train wreck of their life and been pulled out of the gutter and trusted in Jesus, and now these folks look at one another and say, brother, sister, I love you. Who but the wisdom of God could do such a marvelous thing as the local New Testament church? He makes strangers into family, y'all. Man, I had the privilege a couple years ago, I'm sure some of you have had the same experience of watching the musical Hamilton. Have you guys seen this or heard it? Okay, a couple fans. And I remember sitting up there with my daughter watching Hamilton and thinking, good grief, this guy is a genius. No wasted word, like compactly yet comprehensively telling this story and hip hop and rap meets Broadway, this strange amalgamation and somehow it works. And I remember walking out of the performance and saying, Lin-Manuel Miranda is awesome. Hamilton ain't nothing, y'all. This is God's magnum opus. This is the power of the wisdom and the creativity of God. And if God can do this, and listen, by the way, we are just one expressive of the local New Testament church of the thousands upon thousands upon tens of thousands of them that exist in the world because our God is smart. (laughs) He is no dummy, y'all. And we need to worship and and revere him for the wisdom that he has shown through the demonstration of the local church. As we say it at Gospel Hope, the church really does exist to display. It is a manifestation of the wisdom of God. It exists to display the reconciling hope of the gospel. Doesn't matter your starting point, your background, the color of your skin, the date of your birth. If you trust in the gospel of Jesus, you can be made right with God and you can be made right with one another. Because of Jesus, you don't behave to belong. You believe to belong. You just got to trust that the gospel is enough and you are part of this family. That's why Paul is excited about the unsearchable riches of Christ because he saw the transforming power of the gospel to take to take strangers and make them siblings. Number 3. The gospel can make outsiders into offspring. That's weak. It's weak. I know. I know. But I was committed to alliteration. All right? So Pastor Rod would like church discipline me if I didn't alliterate this point. It would be bad news. So It's weak, but you'll see where I'm going. Ephesians 3, verse number 11. This is according to the eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at what it says here. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. At one point, we were all outsiders. And yet through the work of Jesus, what this passage is saying is God is making us offspring, the very children of God with full access to him. Did you see it in the text? Through Jesus, we have boldness and access through faith. To understand the significance of this, you gotta know the Old Testament just a little bit. 
Do you know that the Old Testament temple was not like an extremely welcoming place? It was made up of a series of concentric wings that essentially said like, you can't go in there. The outside, yeah, that was open to everybody, but then you had another ring that said like, hey, this is the court of the Jews. You gotta be Jewish to get in here. Then another ring and only the priest could go in there. And then the innermost ring was called the Holy of Holies. And only one person, the high priest could go in there one time a year. And by the way, it wasn't something you went in just willy nilly, like I wanna go see God. The high priest would literally tie a rope around his leg and bells so that if things didn't go well, they could drag his dead body out. The temple structure in one sense was a giant like keep out structure. You can't get in here. You can't get to God. He is inaccessible to you. And yet... Through Jesus, what this text says is we have boldness. We can just roll up in there and access through faith. How did this happen? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, a very interesting detail is recorded for us. As Jesus hung on the cross, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that the temple veil, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple tore. And it didn't just tear in any way, it tore from the top to the bottom. In other words, God tore it. And it was a loud and clear declaration of this. You now have access to me. My son died on the cross so that you can get to me. One of the blood-bought gifts of the work of Jesus is that we now have all access to God. You ever been at a place where people got a backstage pass or something like that? You know, they got the lanyard the size of a tire that they walk around you put that thing on and you wear it like a badge of honor you're like got this yep i can go in here yep got this got this you sit in the special seats you eat the special foods one of the biggest perks of having one of those things you get like i'm not going to tell this story right now but pastor rod used to be like a bona fide like super traveler before working for the church full-time and he let me graciously participate in some of his benefits and i'm just telling you he has corrupted me terribly. There is like special food for like Delta Platinum Elite Super Gold Standard Diamond XL members. Yeah. You ever have one of those? And it's just kind of like a badge of honor. You're like, woohoo, got the VIP pass. I'm here. Oh, look, other people with VIP passes. Me, you. Yeah, we're tight, right? VIP, VIP, VIP. Through the work of Jesus, you know what the church is? You're VIP members. All y'all, we all got access, unrestricted, unlimited access. We got the giant sized lanyards that God says, through the work of my son, you can come in here. The veil is torn and you have access to God. We need to celebrate, celebrate the transforming power of the gospel to take people who are totally outside looking in, say, come on in here, child. You have access to all that I have given you. <laughs> so where does this leave us? Back at the beginning, I wanna urge us to do two things this morning. I wanna urge us to recognize and rely on the gospel's transforming power. Recognize it and rely on it. Well, what does that look like? Let me give you just a couple of suggestions. 
maybe you come in here and you've been thinking, man, I know I need change, but that just sounds too good to be true. And I'm having a hard time drawing on that $10 million in my account. It just sounds too good to be true. I mean, I've got some patterns in my life that just feel so overwhelming. I just have a hard time believing that the gospel is enough, that the work of Jesus is enough. But friends, remember, if it's enough for the apostle Paul, it's enough for you. He was the baddest dude ever. And the Lord saved him and made him a preacher of the gospel. If he can do it for Paul, he can do it for you. Can I encourage you to maybe pray a simple prayer like this? Lord, help me to believe that the work of Jesus is enough. It's enough for my struggle with porn. It's enough to heal up my marriage. It's enough to help me be, start being responsible with my finances. It's enough to help me determine your will. It's enough to help me to not lash back at the person who has hurt me. It's enough to help me to forgive that person who has wronged me in the past. It is enough. Lord, I believe that your word is true and your gospel is enough. Sometimes we just gotta say the words as a prayer. The second thing I wanna encourage you to do this is this rely on the transforming power of the gospel. What does that look like? Maybe you're like, Lord, I know I need a change and I know what you're calling me to do. Give me the courage to take this step of obedience. I need to believe that you'll keep helping me. So maybe there's something hard God's calling you to do in your life right now. And friends, it's not about what you need to do. It's about you just following through and trusting God to take care of the details. And you need to obey God right now. Would you have a conversation with God about that? I want to just leave us some space here for a minute. Will you, will you recognize, confess the power of the gospel? And will you just say, I want to rely on that? Take some time to talk to the Lord, then we're gonna come back and celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, Lord, we're just a bunch of people in need of change coming to the one who can change us. So Lord, we believe, we believe that the gospel can change us, that the work of Jesus is enough. Help us to obey however you are calling us, Lord. We need you right now. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.
And we're gonna celebrate the Lord's table together. And if you've turned away from your sins and put your hope in the work of Christ and Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, we wanna encourage you to participate in this with us. If you've never done that before, if you're like, man, I don't understand some of this language about the transforming power of the gospel or Pastor Ross talking about God being a way maker. I, I'm curious, I'm interested, but I don't fully understand. Man, we would absolutely love to have a conversation with you. Pastor Rod and I will be available. We'd love to talk to you or really anybody here. would love to share with you about what it means to be changed by the power of the gospel. If you've never experienced that change, we invite you not to participate right now. But if you have, we do welcome you to be a part of this together. You know, when we gather as a church, we don't come together in kind of a chest-thumping posture, celebrating our own righteousness. We come, in a sense, beating our breasts to celebrate the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. And that's what we do through the Lord's table. We celebrate that we are not worthy, but He is. We are not good, but He is. We are not righteous, but He is. And that is why Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He rose victoriously so that anyone and everyone who would ever put their hope in Him could be made right. What this cup and bread symbolizes is that we need Him. We're literally taking Him into us to remind us that we live by the work of Christ on our behalf. Over in 1 Corinthians, it says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus. In our place, condemned he stood. By his wounds, we are healed. Lord, let this moment be a confession that we need Jesus. He is our savior and the only one who can rescue us. We bless you for the broken body of your son, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's eat together. passage goes on to say in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me father we bless you for the shed blood of your son that Jesus was willing to pay the price that only he could pay and through his blood, he made a new covenant, a new and better covenant. We don't need another priest. We don't need another mediator. Jesus is the one who gives us all access to you. We thank you for the spilt blood of your son. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's drink together.
We're gonna sing a song that celebrates the work of Jesus on behalf of sinners. The Lord's stirring in your heart just some way where you're like, man, I have questions. Or, man, I just need a prayer. I need to change. I need the Lord to break some area of sin in my life. I, I need to trust in Jesus freshly. There's gonna be some folks in the back that would delight to spend some time praying with you. We said the church is not like a family. It is a One of the main things family does is we care for one another. So if you'd like someone to care for you through prayer, will you take advantage of that as we sing in worship to our Savior? Go receive prayer uh, and just let those folks minister you. Let's stand on our feet and worship the Savior together.